Welcome to Derail Trains of Thought. Welcome back to Derail Trains of Thought. My name is Timothy Deal, also known as Ed. And this is Nick Hayden, also known as Brain with Feet. So how are you doing on nicknames there, Nick? You, you still got enough? I, I, got, I got a few left I, that I haven't pulled out of my pocket. Brain with Feet's an old middle school one. Uh, nice. I got called Ed in high school, my youth group sometimes, because we had three Tims for a while. <laughs> and Edward was my middle name, so they called me Ed. So Tim, Tim, and Timmy? <laughs> Something like that. Like Ed, Ed, and Eddie, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. This was, of course, back when Edward was still more of an old man's name rather than the name of a sexy vampire. or Sparkly vampire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My bad. Anyway, but welcome back, everyone. Hope you had a good two weeks. We want to start off our show today with something a little new. We call it Listener Feedback. not we do have some listeners out there that have been leaving us a few comments one of them from a few weeks back to on episode three when we were talking about time management a friend of mine from film school greg meyer who's living out in chicago land now he really appreciated the topic on time management and that uh, he really enjoyed the interview with Nathan Marchand because he's working on a book of his own and it should be inspiring for him. So glad we could help you out there, Greg. And uh, Nathan Marchand actually commented on our uh, reading of his prologue. We did that in secret. He didn't know we were going to do that. We were kind of spraying it on him as a surprise and it worked. Yeah. So we were happy to do that. It was a fun sidetrack. And, but the big one we wanted to talk about was uh, John Baylor. He is a good friend from my Taylor Upland days. And he left us an interesting comment that made us do some homework. Um, thanks a lot, John. But, <laughs> but, but what he said, uh, he had some technical difficulties, so unfortunately didn't get to hear all of our discussion last time about the moral universe. But he said that it brought to mind, quote, George McDonald's essay, The Fantastic Imagination. One of his points is, in summary, you can change the laws of the physical universe as much as you want to in a fairy tale or fantasy, as long as your laws are consistent. But you can never change the laws of the moral universe. He's also got some interest, I think he means interesting comments on meaning in stories. It's, a, it's an insightful read and one that may provide still more fuel to your fires. We both had a chance to read this, and uh, it was... A little heavy, but uh, very insightful and very good. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought there were two or three different points or themes that come out through the essay that I don't know struck me as uh, insightful and uh, something that I I could identify with. I guess I'll start with the the idea that the moral universe can't change. And he mentioned there that if you do that, you shouldn't have a bad person being called good, um, which I agree with. Except it seems to happen quite a bit in modern. Well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the people have a lot harder time nowadays accepting a, a really, really good person. Aragorn, Lord of the Rings, had to be kind of watered down in order to, or at least for the filmmakers, to think people would accept him as a king figure. He had to like go through all these weaknesses. But I guess he still didn't actually do anything bad. Like Not like he slaughtered all the hobbits or anything. <laughs> oh, true. <laughs> 
So maybe that's a bad example. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I found interesting where it was this idea that the truer the art, the more ways it can be read. Yeah. This idea that there's a certain ambiguity, and he's talking especially about fairy tales in this essay, mm -hmm. but there's a certain ambiguity to a good story that makes that each reader brings himself to it. It's an interesting contrast, especially because he starts off talking more about the law and that that a man, let's see, where's, where's the line in here? Uh, oh, in one line he has, in physical things a man may invent, in moral things he must obey and take their laws with him into his invented world as well. What's interesting is that while today's culture would see that as being very, you know, rigid and not very um, tolerant, you know, morals are very loose in today's society. But McDonald still says that the interpretations can be different. So and I think that's really fascinating, a, a cool contrast that you, the moral law needs to be solid. But even then, like you said, people can have, take different things away from that. And he seems to imply, actually, that it's, it's a very good thing that it brings yeah. out different truths to everyone. He seems to imply the writers, at least of the fairy tale, his point is not to communicate necessarily truth in like a textbook would, but to communicate truth like music would, in this sort of ambiguous that it brings out something from the person reading it as opposed to trying to put something into the person reading it. Mm. Yeah, I thought the music analogy was very important. Because music is all about feelings and emotions in a sense. Well, I mean, unless you're talking about Baroque stuff. <laughs> but good s stories can can do this, have the same kind of feeling. It's, it's less about communicating a specific idea than it is about helping your audience understand something. Uh, a more general understanding, I guess. Well, and especially in the case of fairy tales, so much of the world you invent in fairy tales has multiple meanings, like a Miyazaki film, say, like uh, Spirited Away. There's a lot of different ways you can interpret the different characters. Mm, that's true. She doesn't have, you know, she has to protect her name. What does that mean? You don't, and you don't want Miyazaki to come out and say, this is exactly what it means, the fact that she's yeah. can't give her name away. Yeah. But it holds a lot of importance just because there's layers of meaning to the idea of, you know, names. Mm -hmm. Or in Girl Called Snore, you know, the, that she's looking for a human face, she has a pig's face is a physical thing, but can have various other interpretations depending on how, I don't know, the bent of your character or what you bring to the story. You know, what did the king of a thousand faces, what is he actually? You know, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> because I think different people have different interpretations of his exact meaning, I guess. Mm. And he makes this point about uh, fairy tales cannot help but have meaning. And partly, he says, even if just because beauty itself has a sense of vitality to it and that's truth. But I know it's like the ring in Lord of the Rings. It's the ring and it's powerful, but it tends to have other things attached to it that aren't explained. Mm. Or Tom Bombadil, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't quite peg down what is his purpose or what, it, you know, is he spirit of the woods? And it kind of destroys Tom Bombadil trying to say what he means. Yeah. That, that was what I took away from the essay. Yeah, I would concur. And so, yeah, very good essay. And that, so thanks for recommending that, John. Any of our listeners who are interested, the link is on that comment, and maybe we can put them in the show notes. Yeah. It's a it's a relatively short essay. It had been a little while since I read uh, something quite that philosophical, but it was a good, very good read. It is more philosophical than, you know, your normal essay, but interesting nonetheless. Definitely. I want to check that out. But with that said, and we can go more into that, but we kind of 
we dealt with the moral universe a lot last time. So, But I think now is a good time to go to story school. Today's topic is one that Nick suggested, but it actually also ties in very well with a lot of, well, I guess what both of us have been doing in our various projects right now, and that is the rhythm uh, and or pacing of a story. Nick, you want to explain this a little bit more? I will attempt to. Um, It's hard to define, but you want a story that has a certain amount of motion that keeps the reader or viewer interested, that it, it doesn't unwind too fast or too slowly. I know a lot of times in movies, they kind of find the rhythm in the editing room, which is why I brought it up. You know, Tim's doing a lot of editing right now. Yeah. Because you want, you want to have enough time for emotions to take hold. You want the action scenes to not be necessarily one right after another without a breather. Yeah, timing is everything in editing. You call the window where you deal with all your various video clips, that's called the timeline. It's very important to get the right impression that you want. You want to be in the audience's perspective. You want to get that, create that sense of what's going on in the scene. And the way it's cut affects that in various ways. Even just something as simple as, say, you want to create a very intense moment. Well, oftentimes, the faster the cuts you have from you know one person to another to another thing, the more intense that that feeling gets and that all these people they're you know they're either looking at each other very quickly or there's like an action scene so you have a lot of very fast cuts and that goes with the action that's going on we have to focus a lot in film editing on the timing of different things in writing i know some people will use shorter sentences for more you know intense actiony scenes and longer more lyrical sentences obviously that works in poetry also probably even more so well, Tim, I think we'll start with you about the examples from your editing right now, but then I can use some examples from uh, Buckethead. Because it, <laughs> okay. I have a certain pacing for that that's different than I've done previously. Right, right. Okay, well, this we're kind of wrapping project update into story school a little bit here. But as I've said before, I've been working on our spring film for Regent. It's called Piece of Cake. Recently, I finished the first rough cut of it, finally. And it was a very, very te- long process, but it's been worth it. Some of the more interesting moments that relate to this, there's one scene in particular. The climax of the film is, well, the film itself is about, I mentioned briefly before, this guy with a lot of phobias that goes to a coffee shop in order to surround himself in an unfamiliar environment with unfamiliar people for at least 20 minutes. He, he just wants to get through that much. <laughs> You see his mind's perspective of his fears of what could happen, so there's a lot of these little fantasy imagination sequences. But the climax of the film comes when this really surly biker guy comes in to get some coffee, and he's offered a cupcake, but they're, like, more expensive than he thinks they should be. He starts ranting and raving, you know, about this thing causing a scene. And the main character, named Jim, he's trying to get out of it. But this is, in a sense, his test. Is he going to help stand up for the people that he's met in the coffee shop and and confront the biker, or is he just going to beat a hasty retreat? It was very key for this climax to really develop a lot of the shots and the tension of the air, of the employees worried about whether they're going to get fired, about 
Jim trying to decide if he should do something about the biker's reaction to this thing. So it was just it just finished the rough cut. So we still have to we still have to refine it. But that scene was one of the most challenging moments because there was several characters that you had to establish where they were in the room. And just, again, the rhythm and maintaining the intensity of the moments as they were interacting with each other. Well, I notice many times in a film and TV, they really linger on people's faces and the motion on their faces longer than you ever would in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that something that you use in, to help create the tension? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I, when we, I watched the completed rough cut with the director, he commented that he hadn't really realized how many moments in the film involve simply another character looking at another person. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not in a bad way. It doesn't feel like anything's lingering in a sense, but there are moments where there's no dialogue and they're just kind of exchanging glances that, you know, a lot is said. It's a lot like Terry O'Quinn on Lost. Mm-hmm. That man who played John Locke can say a thousand words just with a glance. I was just remembering, and I think it was near the end of season five, where Locke, Terry O'Quinn, tells Ben that he has to kill Jacob. And remember that the, the shot lingered on Ben for seriously like 10, well, it wasn't 10 seconds, but a very, very long time yeah. before it just goes boom. And just letting that, that the shoe drop and just hang there. Yeah. I, I thought Lost was very good at letting emotion just hang there or the tension. Mm. I think probably a lot of credit to that has to go to Jack Bender, mm-hmm. one of the main directors from the show. I was thinking, you know, rhythm for movies or pacing, as we call it, sometimes in writing, is kind of like uh, delivery when you're giving a speech. Mm. I can't tell a joke. I don't have the right, I can't deliver it right. To tell a joke well, you have to say the words at the right, you know, at just the right timing and yeah. everything. Yeah. C- comedic timing. But there's also dramatic timing and, you know, all the other types of emotional atmosphere you want to create. Mm-hmm. In my little experiments with editing, it's very easy. You know, you can do a workman-like version where, yes, you get everything across. There's all the people and everything's happening, but it doesn't have any of the that second layer that good editing gives it. Right. And in the original takes, if you would just play through like the original shot, a scene would go by much quicker than it would normally. It's in the building of the various shots and including enough pauses and things like that where you allow the scene to breathe. In some cases, this isn't the case. Like in, it could just be a normal conversation with a person, you know, West Wing, where they're like chatting, you know. Mm-hmm. really snappy patter kind of stuff. You may not linger there as much. It all depends on the situation. Now, for when you're editing, do you ever try to view the pacing of the of the work as a whole? Or do, is most of that in the hands of the writer, do you think? Um, I, I mean, think do you I, move scenes around? Do you uh, trim scenes that should have been longer, cut lines out? Again, it depends on the situation. This particular film, I mean, like I said, we've only done rough cuts, still need to refine it. It probably needs to be tightened a bit more right now because it's an originally a 12-page script, and currently it's about 18 minutes. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty expansive. Yeah, usually you get about a page per minute of screen time, and so 18 minutes is a bit more. We had expected it to go over, like, well, we were thinking more like 15, so there's probably some extra padding there that needs to be taken out. But, um... I don't know. I I know that there are some cases where it does where that does happen because I've seen deleted scenes where I'm like, yeah, they they needed to get that out of there so that they could. It would have held things back if they had left that in. 
I haven't really run across very many instances like that. In fact, one instance in this film that I actually had it a little bit is there is this scene, and this may or may not stay in the film. We had to, <laughs> we had to decide if we tried to milk the joke too far. But there is this moment where Jen, the main character, is trying to work up the gumption to speak to this girl. That's one of the employees there. You see, there's a two shot of them where he's on the left side of the screen, she's on the right, and she's she's sweeping or something. And he like opens his mouth to say something, and then <clears throat> coughs and tries to you know collect himself and and goes for a second time. So he opens his mouth again. Then we cut to another shot where the camera is basically shooting over her shoulder. You know, and he's you know dominant in the frame, and he's he does the same thing essentially. He's open. He opens his mouth to say something, and then stops and then goes back. <laughs> And originally, he only, you know, opened his mouth to say something the the one time. And, you know, then on the second try, he was he actually said something. By cutting it there, I actually added another hesitation. <laughs> and Director and I, we talked about it, may not say that way, but it was interesting to us because if it had just been one take, it wouldn't have worked because if he had done this, like, open out hesitation and, you know, held back twice, it might have felt a little bit too long. But because there is a cut there... And that you cut to, you're expecting to see him talk, and then he doesn't. It's even funnier. That was another interesting case of adding something in post-production that you wouldn't have planned for beforehand. So, And it may stay in the movie, it may not. Nice. Um, another thing I think rhythm and pacing entails is, uh, I guess, momentum. The f- they always tell you, especially in books, you know, start off fast and keep the reader interested. Which I don't think necessarily always means things happening or blowing up. <laughs> I mean, unless you're Ryan Buckethead. <laughs> um, which I'll get to in a second. Yeah, but sometimes I think the the interest or the the momentum doesn't necessarily have to be action oriented as long as you're slowly adding to the readers or viewers understanding of the world, slowly unfurling answers or uh, layers. Mm. I think that has a lot to do with pacing. Not every story needs to start in media res in the middle of something huge going on. Not at all. I mean, some of these older novels I read, they're relatively slow compared to modern standards, but there's a constant movement forward in the, either on the character front or in the, in some front, there's a constant movement forward. Mm-hmm. You know, they try to publish them nowadays, the editor might say the pacing's all off because there's no, I mean, you don't want it to like lead up to something and just die off. Right, right. But, well, like Dostoevsky has this, I guess it would be pacing and rhythm, where in a novel you'll have four or five books. And he has a habit of ending each one on this, certain ones more than others, on the scene where all the characters you've just met end up in one place and they just kind of build into this dramatic chaos. Mm. Especially like the first book of The Idiot or... I think there's the first book of Crime and Punishment has this kind of dramatic... He kind of slowly builds up to the end of his thing and it kind of explodes and then... It's like cut, and then there's another book. Um, so he has a very good dramatic sense in that way. That's good for comedic purposes, too. Yeah, and that's the thing that I think I read uh, in an interview, not interview, but like a uh, foreword about Dostoevsky, that it's almost comedic in the sort of dramatic chaos. It's, mm. it's, a very, it's very similar to how a comedian would do it. Yeah. You know, any Faulty Towers episode. <laughs> That's has true. This, has this this momentum moving closer and closer to complete breakdown. Yeah. Basil is trying to do something, <laughs> and it continue, as he continues to try to support his lie, things keep backfiring <laughs> on him until... Uh... It's always the lie. He makes one little thing. He will not give it up. <laughs> it just completely blows out of proportion. 
Basically, Michael Scott on The Office does the same thing. Something that's basically a molehill, he makes into a giant mountain and spends the rest of the episode trying to compensate for. Uh-huh. Which is good comedy. Yeah, yeah. As a writer, you don't necessarily think about pacing when you first start writing stuff. Uh-huh. I think only recently I have. I thought about it some with A Girl Called Snore. Writing these ser- more serialized novels is kind of different because you look at it first on the micro level, which is this episode. The pace for every installment is like, okay, I need to tie up something, give you some sort of new information, and leave you on some sort of cliffhanger so mm. that there's a constant forward motion that wants you, makes you come back. On the other hand, on Snore, that was the general idea, but in my different sections, I think I had this larger pattern I had established of sort of new situation, exploring and understanding it, like say she ends up in the dark in this castle of Eternal Night, or what do they call it? Oh, the Kingdom of the Blind. Anyways. Right. Complete darkness. Uh, and then she's learning about it and why it's like that. And then the slow unveiling of mysteries. Snort really runs on the idea of mysteries. Yeah. Buckethead, the National Novel Writing Month thing I'm doing on my website, is, like Tim said in one of, my com- in one of his comments, the most action-intensive thing I've ever written. <laughs> By far. <laughs> and really, my focus is really to constantly make something explode. Um, (laughs) kind of like lost kind of like yeah but the trick then is you can't just put pedal to metal the whole time it doesn't work you don't have enough you need to have at least little breathers to make the action worth it right little breathers to make the characters interesting the trick then is to make the breathers relatively short and the action relatively uh intense and i think you've been doing a good job of it so far I mean, you've got some moments where he gives him a little breather, but I mean, it seems like every other, maybe not every other, but every, you don't give him very much of a breather before you're going and in, charging into something, you know, some other new danger or twist or something. Exactly, because, well, we've talked about my second book, Remnant of Dreams, you know, almost nothing happens physically in that book. Yeah. And that's a different sort of pacing. I wasn't thinking pacing at that point, I don't think, except trying to, I've always had this need when I'm writing to make things not linger. I don't like things to linger. So I, I seem like I was always trying, even when writing that book, to make some sort of decision made or some sort of uh, trial for whatever character I was writing about happen in every episode or every chapter. You, because you want you want the characters to have to make a decision, make some sort of... Uh, learn something about their characters. You want to learn something in every chapter you read. Hmm. And hopefully something that will expand the world more than it was. You don't want to keep reusing the same... Well, I could... My wife used to watch Smallville, and... Uh-oh. <laughs> and she, she understands it's, you know, it's it tends to repeat itself. But Lana Lang and Clark Kent constantly had this thing where Lana was like, I can't trust you, Clark. Wait, what, they would say it, like, every episode. <laughs> like, I, I just don't know if I can trust you. It's like, let's move past this. Yeah, you know, please. It was it was good the first time. Yeah, <laughs> we used to tell my my little sister when she was like three, and she would tell jokes like it was funny the first time, but not the second time. <laughs> we should keep saying the same joke over and over again. Yeah, like I, I I remember some of that. <laughs> now you can do repetition well, you know, since we were talking about Lost earlier. I mean, there are certain things that keep reappearing. You know, Lock and Jack just are always going to fight about things. Yeah. But there's it's always like a new uh, reiteration of it. It's like theme and variation in music, if you're going to use the music example. 
that you keep playing mm. the same thing, but you've you've changed it enough that it's the stakes are different or the reasoning's different or something. Right. Yeah. Jack will always have to have a mission that requires a track across the island, and Kate will always try to follow. Him. Exactly. You so. know, and, and as long as and sometimes they play that tongue in cheek where they knew. Yeah, they were always kidding Kate's like, oh, you gotta come again, huh? You're gonna get captured again? And... <laughs> yeah, the worst thing for a writer to do is not understand what the audience... Like, I'm not very good at knowing what the audience is thinking, but at least being critical of your own work, having the sense that maybe this is too long. It's almost better mm-hmm. to be too critical of your work, too much like, well, I spent too long here, let's keep it moving, as opposed right. to uh, just filling up space. Yeah, Definitely. And that's a different issue in writing than it would be in, say, editing. I mean, well, different in, different in some ways and, and not so different in others. As in, you always have to have a sense of when a shot has lingered too long. Because if there's nothing else interesting or significant going on in the shot, then you need to cut to it. And sometimes it can be a matter of frames, you know, milliseconds, where that makes the difference between a, a bad cut and a good cut. You never, especially in, in film or TV, you never want the, the viewer to feel like, oh, I'm watching a TV show. You want to just kind of flawlessly overwhelm them. Yeah, give them the impression that the events are just happening, that, but the cameras just happen to be there. Mm-hmm. Cut exactly the right way for what is going on. I, well, I don't know if this applies, actually, but Cloverfield, you know, was a very interesting way of filming a movie. Mm-hmm. And even though it's supposed to be, you know, the camera the whole time, they have a nice uh, way of, after the beginning, cutting through the non-essential parts. That's true. Like, the guy will stop recording during moments yeah. and stuff like that. Which, you know, which are very cleverly placed to make this uh, deceit work. This idea that he's actually recording it. Mm-hmm. Because if he was actually recording it, it would be much less, it would be le- much less exciting. You wouldn't have near the frame of some of the shots he got. Um, right. <laughs> well, it, this is a hard topic because... It's very abstract. It's it's almost something you have to feel out. Yeah, exactly. It's something that it's more applicable in a case-by-case situation because there's really no hard and fast rules for how, you know, linger on such-and-such romantic scene for X number of pages or whatever. It's very specific to the story you're working with. Yeah, no, on certain uh, stories I've written, when I'm editing it, I'll, be, I'll make a note saying, add more here. <laughs> basically just saying this whatever I'm talking about needs needs to take up more space mm. for whatever reason normally just for you know I feel like it's important but it, I wrote it too concisely I guess yeah it's not quite the right word but in film editing you often have the opposite problem where your first cut usually is longer than you really want which is really probably the better best way to do it because it's easier to take little snippets out than it is to put stuff back in usually i mean less so nowadays with nonlinear editing but back in the days of when they were actually physically cutting film that was definitely the case because if you cut out more than you want to cut out then you gotta like film cement it the physical tape back or film back together <laughs> yeah generally as you're cutting you give each scene you know about the general space that you want and then as you go back through it you realize okay that shot is too long let's cut it at the end or cut it at the beginning let's get it let's get it started a little sooner and even in film you do have to keep track of when scenes are going on too long it's not just a shot by shot thing you do have to you do have to look at the other stuff although i think a lot of that is taken care of more often in the writing of the screenplay at least 
again, in the productions I've done. Yeah. My assumption is that more writers than not write too much and have to pare it down. Mm. Personally, I do that bits and pieces, you know, sentence by sentence, I'll add too many words and cut some words out. But yeah. I tend to be a relatively, uh, I don't tend to over-describe things. or My internal uh, news always wants to move things forward. I have a strong, like, forward momentum. So sometimes my problem is not spending enough time. I know when I was in high school and first learned to write fantasy, you know, I wrote this thing. It's like 20 pages, but people didn't understand it because the world was so different mm. that I did, hadn't given enough time to get the reader in. Mm -hmm. I just kind of threw them in, but didn't give them enough clues to help adjust themselves. It, it was the story about the world that changes every, like, two days. Oh, okay. So there was a lot, <laughs> there was a lot packed in. Right, right. When I write, I'm not a big describer of things either. The trouble I often have is that, well, I used to have, I think I've gotten better at it, in that my dialogue would be too, I would try to explain too much. I look at it and it's like, no one talks this way because I'm trying, <laughs> I'm including so many words trying to convey the exact meaning of what I, you know, I want the character to say. Then you go back and look at it and you're like, uh, that's, that was way too long. <laughs> it is kind of an art to be able to imply through dialogue and even through description what you mean as opposed to say it straight out. And that's only vaguely related to pacing, I guess, but that's, I think, what a lot of writers do when they're cutting is trying to make it more, more impression and less textbook yeah and brevity in writing is usually considered you know brevity w with still conveying your original meaning is usually considered a pretty good thing i don't remember who it was that one time made that comment when he was writing a letter that i'm sorry my le letter is so long i didn't have time to write you a short one <laughs> yeah i remember hearing that and that's that's very true longer is much easier but you can just throw things down on the paper yeah so what can we take away from this? I'm not sure we've come... We have a hard time coming up with conclusions most of the time. <laughs> because most of the time we're just sitting here hammering out around the circumference and we can't quite get to the center of it. How many licks does it take to get to the center of uh, story school? <laughs> and especially this one, like we said, I mean, it really often depends on, on your story and the needs of it. I guess one thing for writers I think helps, at least for me, is to let it sit and grow cold for a week or so so you can come back and read it as if you were right as if you're reading it like a reader yeah so you can feel like oh wait that's what you know if i read it straight afterward i think it sounds great except for the grammar generally but you don't know how how it feels timing wise and that's that's important in film editing too i agree with writing but also in film editing after i finished or well, finished most of the rough cut i left it alone didn't touch it for a day before I you know, went to work at it again with the director. Because after a while, I mean, for one thing, you just get sick of looking at the same footage over and over. And I made a Facebook comment about this, and it relates in some ways to podcast editing too, in that editing is often feels kind of like a hopeless task of trying to call the very best minute moments out of takes that are imperfect. Almost no take is perfect. I mean, even if you have really good actors, trying to match the continuity, trying to make sure it's all, you know, the same, trying to match the needs of the story and the best, get the best performance of the characters. And there's oftentimes, more often than you would like to admit, something somewhere in one of those things that you have to sacrifice and, and you just have to figure out which is the best. And so working at it for a long period of time, you, for a little while, I start to feel like, oh, this is nothing here. This <laughs> kind of looked terrible. But then when you, you put, so you put it aside for a while and come back to it. And you'd be like, 
huh, that actually kind of worked. <laughs> that was cool. There's hope for this project yet. Exactly. <laughs> I, I think that's that, that can summarize it for now. Yep. I think that's a good conclusion. It click When it clicks, it works. Yep. Okay, that make so any sense. So trust your gut. <laughs> trust, trust your gut and your artistic sensibilities with how the pacing is going, and you should be fine. Yes. It may not hurt to get an outside opinion, too. That's true, because you, your, your sensibilities grow as you do it more. Yeah. All right, and with that said, let's move on to the soundtrack. All right, I guess I have the first soundtrack today. I, I went through a lot of different choices for this one because with a theme like rhythm and pacing, there's a lot of a lot of things to do musically. We've actually brought music several times in discussions of rhythm already today. That's true, yeah. But I ended up going with a song called "It's a Jungle Out There." It's remixed from Donkey Kong Country 2. And it's remixed by Joshua Morse, which uh, I want to give a shout out to him because he also remixed the song that we use for our intro music, yeah. which is Vampire uh, Snap. Vampire Snap. From Castlevania 2, I think? Uh, I think it's actually from the first Castlevania. Okay, you might be right. And actual Joshua Morse, all his songs are very smooth and chilling and just all around pretty good stuff. I've never played Donkey Kong Country 2 because I was always like, Diddy Kong, I don't want to play with Donkey Kong. <laughs> But apparently it's got a lot of good music because there's a lot of great remixes from it out there. There's a jungle out there. It's very chilling and uh, jungly. And I hope you enjoy.
So we're back. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Salutations. Hope you enjoyed that song. I really enjoy that song. I, I when I burn a CD with it, I play it like nonstop back and forth to work. Very groovy. So, and now we have another new segment to share with you. This is called A Bit of Story. So since this is a podcast that's about storytelling, we thought it'd be nice, and we've been wanting to do this for a while, to have a segment where we just share a story with you. And this is a story that you wrote, Nick. This is a flash fiction. You want to set this up for us? Sure. I've been going last year or so writing a number of flash fictions, many of them based on music. And this particular one called Four Till Boom. And it's a very action-oriented, dialogue-heavy, almost radio drama-esque flash fiction. And this actually is what became the first chapter for Buckethead, my uh, national novel writing experiment this month. I really like that about this. I didn't expect that. When you said you were going to do it off of, do your um, National Novel Writing Month story off of Fort Till Boom, I thought it would just be like, you know, later in the story. But it's actually more like the actual prologue to the story. It ties right in. Yeah, yeah. It starts almost immediately after what you're about to hear and then doesn't much stop as of <laughs> yet. So hopefully, hopefully you'll enjoy it as read by Nick's wife, Natasha Hayden, and our mutual friend, Kenny Castillo. Okay, enjoy. Clint, Clint, talk to me. Did you make it? Clint! Uh, uh, I made it. Oh man, that hurt. I'm not doing that again, Molly, not ever. Not even if the whole earth's in peril. Well, I think jumping from a secret military plane onto a nuclear missile would be a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Our ribs are... I think they might be broken. They are not. Stop complaining. Your ribs are made of an indestructible metallic alloy. Listen. We have less than four minutes till this thing slams into New York. We can discuss your boo-boo later. Get up to the warhead now. Give me a second. It's hard to grab on into anything. My joints aren't working right. Enough, crybaby. Just do it. All right. I'm there. Now what? There's a wire to cut or something, isn't there? I saw this on an old TV show. Wires, you buckethead? A sophisticated computer runs this thing. Can't I just... Clobber it or something? Three minutes till impact, Clint. Even you won't survive the explosion, so stay on task. Rip off the panel, will you, and tell me what you see. Okay. Uh, there's some circuit boards, some stuff I don't recognize, and uh, a lot of other things I don't recognize. You know, it's that mine had blown off my face, too. Could have had video cameras for eyeballs. We'd be all sitting pretty now, wouldn't we? I like your eyes, Clint. Uh, now you're nice to me. Don't know how to shut it down, do you? And now you're afraid you might never see me again. Shut up. I need to think. Maybe there's an off switch. Clint, be quiet. Okay, look. There is a way, but I didn't want to do it. Remember those nanites Dr. Destructo infected you with? Yeah, like Marty McFly remembers being called chicken. <laughs> and we stabilized you by locking them in your chest under a stasis field. Uh, yeah. Weirdest surgery ever, staring into my chest cavity like that. How does this keep New York from going boom? If you hardwire yourself into the system and shut down the stasis field, the nanites should disable the warhead for you. They're programmed to shut down any computer they come in contact with. I know. 
They almost killed me last time. We were just discussing that. It's my only plan, Clint. Two minutes till impact. I was seconds from having all my functions wiped and my heart stopped. I know. And this is your best plan. I'm sorry, the clock's ticking. I can order you to do this. You're a big talker, you know that? Give me a sec. I'm wired in. About ready to release Stasis Field. Hey, Molly? Yeah? I better cry at my funeral. All right, here goes nothing. Clint, is it working? Clint, can you hear me? Clint, don't you die on me, Clint. Clint! Connection's back. Oh, Molly, are you there? What's going on? Are you all right? Hey, hey, no. Don't sound so panicked. Piece of cake. The dumb Nanas didn't even bother with me. Thought I was defective already. That doesn't make any sense. Broken ribs. Told you they hurt. Joints were working. Probably messed up a lot of internal circuitry. We're falling now. Just a second. Nice day for a swim. If you want, you can send a boat after me. If not, I think I'll just enjoy myself. You're insufferable, you know that? So that was Forward Till Boom. And if you want to find out what happens next, go to Nick's website and you can read it at... What's the website, Nick? Worksofnick.com. And it's been really fun. I've enjoyed reading something a little new each day. Well, when I can. Sometimes I have to catch up. Yeah, it is updated every day, and hopefully, if I plan things right, we'll end November 30th. Very cool. All right, and now it is time for our take on Tales. All right, this is a segment where we talk about something that we've read or seen lately and uh, what we thought about it. So, Nick, why don't you go first this week? Yeah, what I'm going to talk about today, I'm not actually done with. I'm only about halfway through it. It's a book. Um, But I don't think the things I want to talk about will change much as I finish it up, and I'll explain why here. Okay. I got this book at, my sister owns a bookstore here in Kendallville, and she had a couple of book swap parties where everyone brings a book they don't mind getting rid of, and it's like a white elephant gift, and everyone switches books. Oh, fun. Um, and so one time, I although you bro- could be exchanging a, real, a lousy book for another lousy book, I guess. That, that's yeah. very true. I mean, most people bring books that they like that they want other people to read. Okay, so well, it might be a lousy book, but someone likes it. <laughs> so one time, I think it was a second time, I brought Foundation by Isaac Asimov and ended up with, and my sister ended up with that, and I got her thir- the Thirteenth Tale. I can't remember the author, which was a really good book. Um, hmm. Very gothic. There's a family and kind of mysterious, and there's twins. And but the writing also is just very lyrical, beautiful writing. And if you like words, if you like books, you'll like this particular book. Like if you have, if you're a bibliophile, you're just like holding books in your hand. The main character in this book, that, and that sounds books. like something Summer would like. Oh, Summer, Summer adored this book, and she had two of them. Um, because one of them she got for free from an advanced reader copy, so she gave me one. and I really enjoyed it, but that's not the one I'm talking about this time. The <laughs> other time, I traded a, one an extra copy of Eye of the World by Robert Jordan for, who the person I ended up really liking, for Safely Home by Randy Alcorn. Randy Alcorn is a Christian writer. I'd only known him previously from a devotional book on heaven. I think he wrote a larger book, the devotional book was based off of. It's, I've heard of the heaven. I think that's probably what he's famous for. 
Yes, I think that is what he's famous for. But this book was, I think it came out in 2001. It's called Safely Home, and it's about the Chinese church. The basic premise is that Ben Fielding's this American executive, um, and he's sent to China to kind of get to know the people because his industry is going to move in and try to, you know, that's a new big place for businesses to go and make money in China. And his old roommate from Harvard lives in China. He's a Chinese, and he's part of the house church in China, and kind of exposes Ben Fielding to all the persecution and human rights violations and just the whole underground church of China. And it's one of those books where it's written very much for the point of explaining facts. Like some Michael Crichton books, like uh, Next, which is a scary book. But Next is all the characters, all the situations are basically put there to show in fiction form research he's done. Something that's going on. Something that's going on. James Mishner, I haven't read much of him. I tried to read this uh, caravan book that was about Afghanistan. You know, and a lot of it's just trying to put in fiction form all these details about the culture. So it's not necessarily, you know, if your book's not, it's not necessarily literary. But I I have found it very intriguing being immersed in kind of this house church Chinese culture. My wife grew up in Brazil. Her her parents are still missionaries down there. And living Brazil for like the three weeks I visited one time. Okay, not living, moving. <laughs> but you you completely surround with a different culture, a different way of looking at the world, and it's it helps readjust you a little bit, I think. Hmm. Well, you know they always say read books because you can be, travel to different worlds. But it really, it is kind of like that. Reading I mean, Rainbow. Re, yeah, reading Rainbow exactly. <laughs> it's very much that. Uh, the dialogue's all there to get certain points across. It's not that it's stilted or anything, but the characters are sort of symbols. Mm. I mean, they're more than that. Sure. But I, I found it really interesting, this experience of a, ch- a passionate church culture in a place where they're persecuted, as opposed to in America, where we're very free, generally, in our religious practices, but sometimes don't have the same passion because it's so easy. Mm, yeah. So it's been it's been very uh, thought provoking in lots of ways. Yeah, I would be very interested. I've heard a lot of good things about the church in China, about their passion, and it does seem like a sign of maybe something that we need to be looking up to. This book says that there are possibly more Chinese Christians, more Christians in China than in any other country. Wow! E- even though they're persecuted, I mean, I think officially they're not. Yeah. But they are. Right. Part of that could be because, I mean, it is the largest nation population-wise in the world. There's like a billion people, yeah. No, yeah. And then, like, little little tidbits, like, come through. Last night I read that the Quan, Li Quan, is the main Chinese character. And he was talking about the Chinese alphabet. The character for redemption is made up of two other characters. One that's a lamb over top of the symbol for me or I. Hmm. Which he says, well, and then he says it has one for desire and it's like woman between two trees um and he he relates that to the garden eden and one for spirit which is like covering and water and three persons and then it lines very closely up to the whole spirit was over hovering over the water and then god created the world and i'm assuming this is from research that lee kwan says that some chinese christians think that there's like 120 some characters that seem to have been founded from the bible mm-hmm. Because China's like one of the oldest cultures in the world. Right. The language is probably as close to, let's say, Genesis as you're going to get. Which was a really fascinating thing. They make this point several times that China probably was a Christian country at one point. 
and then isn't anymore for various reasons. I mean, ancient right. history and then modern history. Uh huh. But it, it's it's a very uh, thought provoking read. I've I've enjoyed it so far. It's not my n- usual choice of books, which is the nice thing about these book swaps. I've read two books that I wouldn't normally pick up off the shelf. Yeah. How often do they do that? They've done it twice. I don't think there's any regular schedule for it. I think she'll probably try it again eventually, spring or something. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've heard that a bit about the Chinese characters before, and it, it is very cool. Have you ever heard... It? I'm trying to think of her name. I think it's Gladys Allward was a missionary to China. Um, she was one of the first modern missionaries to China. I think it was, this was... She was over there a little before... Shortly before World War II, and... There's a movie that's about her called, I think, The End of the Sixth Happiness. Yeah, and, and toward the end of that, they have to like flee the Japanese that are coming in to invade. But if you're enjoying that book, and it sounds like something I would like to read some more too, about too. But if you're enjoying that book, you might you might enjoy reading about her and about how you know the challenges she faced introducing Christianity to the places she went. Mm. And, Oh, and the issue of foot binding, which was a major thing that she dealt with. Oh, yeah. So. True. One other random interesting fact. They talk the the Forbidden Temple, I think that's what it's called. Like this giant temple in China. And it's like one of the few temples, I guess, that doesn't have any idols in it. Hmm. And again, I think this is conjecture, but the main character says that some Chinese Christians believe that's because the emperor there, I don't know when in their history became a Christian and got rid of all the idols. Oh, really? Now, there's also the belief that it was a temple to the sky god, so it w- oh. there would have been no idols. So oh. you can read it whichever way, but I find it interesting, these these uh, conjectures that obviously some people must believe for it to show up in this book. Hmm. Another side, uh, not side, parallel theme is uh, martyrdom, because that's hmm. a big part of this persecuted church here in China. Yeah, I imagine it would be. So it's been interesting. What was the name of it again? Uh, Safely Home. Safely Home. Yeah, I'll have to remember that. Well, my pick this time around is a bit more lighthearted. Good. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, and it's a DVD that I got for my birthday, which is very recently. It's called Dog City. And this is an old Jim Henson production. So I need to give a little background about it. Back in... Oh dear, I meant to look this up. I think 1987, late 80s, Jim Henson had this television program called the Jim Henson Hour. And I told you about this, Nick, but I'll explain it again for listeners. <laughs> the Jim Henson Hour was very much like Jim Henson's take, essentially, on a wonderful world of Disney sort of program, where he could create a lot of little special little short features. It was about an hour-long program. And it could just be, you know, he liked to explore all kinds of different storytelling with different special effects, and he had a lot of different little stories in imagination. Typically, a, sh- a show like would be the first half hour would would be this thing called Muppet Television, which was a lot like Muppets Tonight in a sense. The concept was Kermit had access to television signals from around the galaxy, and then he would pick ones that he thought would be fun to show. And there was always typical Muppet backstage shenanigans and stuff like that. And then the second half hour would be something completely different. Sometimes it, it would be something brand new that had been created just for the Jim Henson Hour. Sometimes it was a continuation of a miniseries of the Hensons called The Storyteller, which is a fabulous miniseries if you ever get a chance to watch it. It is. It is really, really good stuff. Yeah. Just a retelling in a very oral 
uh, tradition of old folk tales and, and fairy tales and stuff. So if, if you're interested in, in our discussion from George McDowell, you would really love this miniseries. So sometimes they did that kind of split hour format, and other times they would have a special story that would last a full hour. And unfortunately, the Jim Henson hour didn't make it very well in the ratings. Uh, I think NBC had, they produced 13 episodes, they only aired 10. And it's been kind of this long lost treasure for Jim Henson and Muppet fans that we've we wanted to see come out in some form, but hasn't. One really nice person had started putting episodes of the Jim Henson Hour on YouTube. So we finally got to see some of them that way. Someone had recorded on VHS or something, so that was wonderful. But there are two stories that the Jim Henson Company asked him specifically not to include because they were very important for the company. One was called Song of the Cloud Forest, which is a sort of environmental story about a frog that's trying to find a mate. And the other one was this other one called Dog City. Dog City was one of these hour-long features that it actually won an Emmy. And they've released this on DVD recently, which we were really happy about. They released Song of the Cloud Force and this one. Because we were afraid, us, again, obsessed Muppet fans, we were always afraid that we'd this would never see the light of day. Because although the Muppets are now owned by Disney Everything else, well, Sesame Street is owned by Sesame Workshop, and everything else is owned by the Jim Henson Company, including a lot of these side stories from Jim Henson Hour. But in Dog City, Ralph the Dog is a narrator. So we were always kind of worried, oh, if they did release it, it, they'd have to get cooperation with Disney, or they'd have to cut his scenes out entirely, which would lose a lot of the story. But thankfully, they were able to release it intact, and it's been a real treasure. So got this this thing for my birthday. Was really excited to watch it. And I really enjoyed it. The concept is it's kind of a spoof of noir gangster kind of films. <laughs> nice. In a city populated by dogs. But this stranger was none other than our hero, Ace U. That's Ace U. Get it? Boy, if that isn't a setup for a gag, I don't know what is. Are you Bubba the bartender? Maybe. Who wants to know? I'm you. You're me? No, you. Why you? Why, yay. Look, it's simple. You is me. You is you? Right. So, who is me? Oh, who is you? Pleased to meet you, who? Now I'm confused. But you used to be who? What? Call me Ace. He inherits a, you know, kind of a pub, kind of, you know, place called the Doghouse. And he has to deal with the gangsters who want him to pay protection. They have a protection racket business. And so he has to deal with those, even though he is an ex-sheepdog that is trying to give up on former violent ways. Whereas opposed to the the head gangster who loves senseless violence. And he, I mean, he actually says that. If, a, if, if the violence isn't ridiculous enough, he's a little disappointed. Oh, boy. That sounds perfect, Jim Henson, right there. Yeah, yeah. And it's just a fun little film. It's about 40 minutes, and it's all puppetry, of course. Ralph is, like I said, Ralph is the narrator, but he's the most Muppety-looking character out of them. A lot of the dogs all look, they, they do kind of a really nice semi-realistic look for them. They, they're very oh. intricate-looking puppets, and they look semi-realistic. 
and the city itself looks pretty cool. I mean, it's it's an entire puppet world essentially. So it's not like you know they're Muppets living in a in a mostly human world. It's all these dogs. So it looks really cool, and and the humor is just fantastic. Like in the first the first setup for for first few minutes are just so pun heavy. It's like a segment of Veterinarian's Hospital. That's awesome. Yeah, puns are fabulous. Yeah, to give you an example, and especially with the kind of rhythm, and Ralph gives a lot of these. So at one point, when the main character, the German Shepherd, who was raised by Pekingese, <laughs> he starts talking about his sheepdog days, and at one point, it cuts to Ralph, and he says, "I guess now you turn to me expecting a sheep joke." Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So nice. There's a lot of that kind of stuff, and it's it's fun. Again, it's just. Wonderful creativity and a, just a real blast for for Muppet fans and for uh, for film buffs and anyone anyone who's watched seen some classic noir gangster stuff will get a kick out of it. That sounds really fun. I didn't even know that existed. Yeah, and most people didn't. So <laughs> you can get it. it's pretty cheap. I think I think you can get it for like ten bucks. Nice. Um, yeah, and you might. I don't know if it's on Netflix. It might be. I should check. That'd be a great way to see it. Yeah. So that was neat to get. I still need to get Song of the Cloud Forest just because I'm a completionist that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want everything. Yeah. Is the reason they can't bring out the Jim Henson Hour because of all the rights issues? I, I think that's kind of the main problem because, I mean, the Muppets are owned by one company, the, by Disney, and then all the, all the other elements, like the Storyteller, are owned by Jim Henson Company. So I'm sure there'd be a lot of copyright issues. And Plus, I think they're trying to get the other Muppet shows out first. Oh, that makes more sense. Yeah, I mean, they want to get all seasons of the Muppet show out. And we've been waiting for the season four set for a while now, but it's there's a lot of copyright issues, not with the Muppets themselves, but with the songs that are on the shows. Oh, yeah. When they got rights to the songs, you know, back in the 70s when the show was being made, of course they had rights to broadcast it, you know, whenever they want in syndication, but that was way before people had negotiated home video licensing or anything yeah. like that. So that's it's been holding back. We've been waiting I think about two years for season four to come out. So wow. hopefully they'll finish up they'll finish up the Muppet show releases and then maybe Muppets Tonight and then maybe someday Jim Henson Hour. We can yeah. only hope. That'd be very cool. Yeah. You know what I should have done for uh our take on Tales? I should have watched I watched this fabulous movie called E the other week. Egot. Wait, is that an MST3K? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> have, you seen, have you seen that one? I think so. Isn't that the one about the like caveman? Yeah. Or something? Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. That's a ridiculous movie. That is completely ridiculous. But okay, <laughs> now non sequitur. <laughs> yeah, if you do want to go see some Jim Henson Hour, by all means, check out YouTube. You can watch most of it. And one episode that is definitely worth seeking out is this episode where Jim Henson goes behind the scenes. He actually, well, Jim Henson is actually himself is actually the host for it. He'll introduce the various segments, which is cool to see him. But one of them is called Secrets of the Muppets, and it goes behind the scenes. It's like a DVD, you know, documentary way before they did that kind of stuff. You know what? I think I remember seeing that on TV, that episode. I think they did. I think Nickelodeon showed it as like a standalone kind of thing at some hmm. point. So, well, and then if it would have been eighty-seven, you said, or around there, I would have been seven. I might have actually seen it. Yeah, possibly. I remember bits and pieces. It seems like. But yeah, although I'm not sure. I feel like that might have been one of the episodes that or didn't get aired. That didn't get aired initially, but then they released it as something else later on. Oh, okay. Maybe that's that. That's probably true. 
That's my theory anyway. It's unfortunate that it didn't do better, but it's occurred to me later on that those kind of programs where sort of variety kind of programming, it's great for the storytellers, for the filmmakers, but it may not be work as well for the audience. Because I remember when they redid The Wonderful World of Disney for ABC for a while, and it was kind of like, well, they may have this, you know, this movie on this week, but I may not be in the mood for that, you know? Yeah. You might be in the mood for, you know, a comedy and they have an action or a romance thing, or you want a cartoon and they have something different. So it's when it's different each week, it's harder, I think, to maintain that audience because they don't know what to expect. Yeah. And I think that'll wrap it up for today. Hopefully you enjoyed uh, the conversation. Uh, Nick, what's, what's our contact info so they can send something in for us to read back on the air? All right. Well, our email is derailedtrains at gmail.com. We'd love to get email with comments or suggestions. You can leave a comment on our blog is uh, derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. Yeah, those are the two main ways. I heard through the grapevine someone telling, I think one of my sisters, coming that the one problem with the podcast was that they kind of wanted to interact with, felt like you were listening to a conversation and they wanted to interject something. Well, you know, leave a comment and you can. Or if you want to get creative, send an email us of uh, audio comment. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And we can, we can work it in here. Yeah, definitely. You can actually, we can actually hear you. As we fade out, we got one more soundtrack for you. For my pick this week, my only hesitation for picking this song is it's another Chrono Trigger song, which we had a Chrono Trigger like two weeks ago. But there's so much good music from that game that people make that it's hard to resist. This song is called Black Wind Rising, and it's by a remixer called Star Salzman. Salzman? Salzman? I think it's Salzman. I picked this one because it emphasizes not so much rhythm like Nick's did, but kind of the pacing. It's It has a really nice build-up, and then it just goes nuts. But it's a very fun song. So. It is a fabulous, fabulous song. Any last comments, Nick? I don't think so. As soon as I get done here, I'm also going to finish a couple 500 more words or something for Buckethead. So. Done, done. All right, well, we'll leave you to it. And, uh, again, hope to hear from you all soon, and... And we'll see you next time. This is Tim. This is Nick. Adios. Adios.